This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. Welcome to our panel. And a key question, how do we unlock the trillions? So it's not millions, it's not billions, it's trillions that we need in order to uh, transition the global economy to net zero and also a nature positive future. I'm going to start, I think, with uh, Sean Kingsbury. Sean is currently the CIO of Just Climate, but many of you will know him as the former chief executive of the UK-backed Green Investment Bank. And the reason I want to start with you, Sean, is clearly the GIB played a pivotal role in catalyzing the UK's offshore wind industry, currently second only to China, having more installed global wind capacity, wind capacity around the British Isles than, uh, well, China's the only other leader. And you played an absolutely pivotal role, not only in financing that, but in catalyzing the private investment. So I was just hoping that you would reflect on that experience, key lessons learned, and indeed how maybe you're applying some of that in your current role. Thank you, Marie. Look, getting offshore wind to work in the UK was a really interesting challenge. And 10 years ago, it was very much a minority sport. The only people who were really developing those offshore wind farms were the utilities, the very large utility companies. And we wanted to build 10 gigawatts of wind. It was going to be about 40 billion then at the cost of wind as it was. And that was just far too much for to expect UK utilities or international utilities to fund the finance. So it was really important to bring in and to catalyze private capital and make this a mainstream asset. And it was hard to begin with because I guess, like a lot of new technologies, it was not really commercially proven at scale and it required a significant green premium. When the cost of power in the UK was about 50 pounds a megawatt hour, you needed about 155 pounds a megawatt hour to make those first projects work. So about three times the cost of conventional power. So that's quite a significant green premium. We started to invest and over the next five years, we took more and more risk. We provided debt to the first project. The second project we got invested in, we agreed a fixed price. So we were reducing the risk from the beginning. And as we built more skills and more confidence, we took more risk. So we became an equity investor throughout the remaining seven or eight projects we did. So we did about 10 in total. And over that, over that period of years, that five years, we showed you could build these pretty much on time and on budget, and you could make a great return. But we also saw the green premium come down from about 155 pounds a megawatt hour, three times the cost of conventional power, to the last CFD as we were selling the bank in 2017 was 39 pounds a megawatt hour. So a 20% discount over conventional power. And so what that allowed us to do 
is therefore take about 70% of the levelized cost of energy out over a period of time. And that theme is really why it's such an important example. Obviously great for the UK, obviously great for offshore wind, but that theme around seeing a green premium in these infrastructure heavy assets is one we will see again and again. If we want to decarbonize steel, if we want to decarbonize concrete, if we want to produce sustainable aviation, if we're going to get long duration energy storage to work, these are all technologies which are very asset heavy, very like offshore wind. And as we think about deploying capital into those and building those assets, being able to show that example and say, you can take the green premium out. We took 70% of it out over a period of five years. And you can take something which is a minority sport and make it a mainstream investment area. That's why it's such a good example. And uh, I have to say there were lots of people, we played a role, but there were lots of people involved, lots of utilities, lots of mainstream investors. And today it is a proven asset class. I, it's an absolutely world-class example of public-private partnership, I think, in that um, I like to refer to it as a green print, in that, you know, of, as you say, there were lots of parties involved. There were policy signals that needed to change. I think there was something we had to change, seabed leasing rights. There was CFDs, the contracts for difference needed to be set up, the auctions needed to be set up, and then clearly we needed a vehicle such as the GIB to take that initial construction and project risk at the start. Why have we not seen that happen in other sectors? Uh, I, I, I think we will, right? And you hinted at it in terms of what I've been doing now. We set up Just Climate to exactly look at those other areas, those hard to abate areas. And you might say, well, why would you go there? I, I, I follow a thing called Sutton's Law. I, Willie Sutton was not a Harvard professor or a Yale student. He was a bank robber, right? And he famously answered the question, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. So why do you go to the hard to abate areas? Because that's where the emissions are. It's Sutton's Law, right? And so if we're going to, to really focus on those areas that produce about 50% of the emissions today, they're typically asset heavy. They are steel, they are concrete, they're uh, sustainable aviation, they're all of those things. And we can't decarbonize those with a digital model or a software solution. We have to build plants. And the financing challenge is the ticket sizes are typically too big for venture capital. They're too asset heavy for most growth capital. And they're frankly too early for infrastructure capital. So they fall, unfortunately, into that valley of death. And so we've established Just Climate as a private funded. We've got institutional private capital to come in and fund these. There are two challenges with the Green Investment Bank model. It, it, it did very well, and it has been admired and copied around the world. But those two challenges are, this is an international problem. It's not bounded by national borders. So we have to think about it in a broader sense. And while governments have lots of capital, they don't have enough capital to solve this. It has to be private capital. There's a role for government capital. I know, John, you'll come on and talk about the work you're doing now. But if we don't raise private capital, if we don't get institutional capital at scale to move, we're not going to solve these problems because of the scale. I'd love to pick up on that actually with you, John. So sitting next to me, John Flint, former chief executive of HSBC, currently chief executive of the UK Infrastructure Bank. So 22 billion balance sheet backed by government. Um, but this point about we need public and private capital working together, but the public capital is finite. Yeah. So obviously a conundrum that you're grappling with. So um, 
maybe we start actually in case people aren't familiar with UKIB and your mandate and your aim, maybe if you just explain that and then we'll get into the more technical discussion. Great, thank you. So yeah, the UK Infrastructure Bank is I think the newest piece of the financial architecture in the UK. We have one shareholder, HM Treasury, um, so publicly sponsored bank with a very narrow niche and mandate. So we are here to finance the infrastructure in the UK that's required to get us to net zero or for leveling up. That's all we do. And we go looking for problems to solve. So we've got 22 billion pounds of notional capital, but we're not like a long only manager with 22 billion pounds to invest that's just looking for the, to maximize returns. We're deploying public money in pursuit of problems that the private markets on their own are not able to solve. We've been given five priority sectors, clean energy, digital, waste, water, and transport. And clean energy will clearly become the, the guerrilla sector in that. Our, our shareholder, and in many ways, I've got the, the dream job, right? I have one shareholder, no regulators, and no competitors, <laughs> um, because we don't compete for, for financing opportunities. But our shareholder requires us to be profitable. We don't give grants. Although we're publicly owned, we're not in the business of giving grants. And we have a publicly available, publicly known target return on equity of two and a half to four percent. And the signal that we want the market to take from that is our risk appetite is just different to the private market. The bank will be two years old next month. We're still building. There's still, and Sean will recall the challenges of building one of these. We're still building, but we're 200 people strong now. We've deployed or we've committed two billion pounds. We are up and running and we're looking for problems to solve. Fantastic. There's an obvious next question, which is what are you seeing working well in your new role? And clearly you have a, a unique perspective, having previously been the chief exec of a multinational commercial bank. Um, what are you seeing well, working well in the interaction between UKIB, Majesty's Treasury and the private sector? Yeah, no, thanks. I think this is, this is kind of, the, for me, the key question and the key learning point two years in. I mean, the first thing to say is government policy, from my perspective, looks good, right? We have a legally binding commitment here to net zero. We have a net zero strategy. We've got policy milestones, deliverables and targets. If you're in the private sector and you're interested in net zero, there's, there's a good roadmap for the UK that you, that you can reference. And clearly the public sector is stepping up with a balance sheet. And everybody that you'll hear from today has, is deploying public money or has deployed public money in pursuit of this. But we need to recognize that the public sector balance sheets are not going to be big enough on their own. They can't socialize the cost of this forever for everybody. We need the private markets to step up. And the challenge that I put on the table today is when we talk about the private markets, private capital's commitment to the transition, I think they've made the first stage in committing, which is to sign the charters, right? To commit to the right clubs and to say we want to do this. But my big fear is the next stage is going to be a little bit harder. And I say that because everybody would like us in their deals. That's, and that's because of our shareholder. But the conversation we typically have with the private markets is, okay, if you can transform the risk of something, transform the financial risk of something so that it meets my current risk appetite or my current return targets, we'll invest. Now we can do that. And we will do that to a point, but a 22 billion pound budget, as you all know, won't get us anywhere close. So the private markets and those responsible for committing private capital, yes, you're committed, but the conversation that I think hasn't happened yet, that should be happening in boardrooms and in risk committees is, okay, if we're committed, what are we prepared to give up? 
because the mythology is we're all going to make a ton of money out of this. And the entrepreneurial investors, I think there are some great opportunities, but I, I, I just worry, I worry about this, this lack of capacity, willingness to change risk appetite or to change return expectations. We're going to end up with a bit of a standoff. I would like over the next course, the next couple of years to encourage more, more of those responsible for deploying private capital to meet us in the middle a little bit. We'll use our scarce resource, but we need a change in risk appetite. You made your point very clearly. Thank you, John. This idea that the private sector might need to reassess its uh, risk and reward appetite. I think, I think that's a good point maybe to ask Julia or Tim whether you'd like to comment on that, given the, the work that you're doing. Julia, I can see you nodding. So this concept of blended finance, I think, is really important and, and underpinning. Part of what underpinned the wind opportunity were the contracts for difference. So we do know when we have new technologies coming through and the risk appetite isn't there, we've got several mechanisms to reflect that risk-adjusted return. And I think one of the potential roles for an entity like the British Business Bank is to be the third person in, in that marriage, um, whereby we can either value the impact of the investment more or we can absorb a bit of the risk through guarantees and other mechanisms. Um, because quite a few of the challenges are really quite straightforward. The classic electric vehicle, to refer back to the UKIB work, a key focus for you guys is that charging infrastructure. So we have people who want to buy electric cars who have, you know, range anxiety, admit it, you do. Um, and they're worried about, are they going to be charging stations where they want them to be? And we have people who would like to potentially invest in charging infrastructure who just aren't sure if EVs are the answer and what way are they going to get bought at. And actually, it was something the Green Finance Institute highlighted in one of their pieces of strategy work is this chicken and egg environment. So maybe what we need is government funding in a, in a blended way alongside private to say, OK, we will take on the risk of the appetite. We will do a utilization linked loan for a period of time to demonstrate that the market is there, to give the data that the private sector need, and then we need to back out and leave them to yeah. and go and address the next problem. So in contrast to John's um, delightful 22 billion, you can see the envy on my face. <laughs> uh, the British Business Bank was set up in 2014, primarily to improve access to finance for small businesses. We like the really little, they can either be the innovators, they can be the enablers, and of course they have to adopt the tech too. So we're really interested in, in finding ways of working wholesale, we're like a fund of funds through venture capitalist firms and through alternative lenders and banks to try and get these smaller ticket sizes working because the SMEs are half of the business emissions in the UK and more than 90% of the employment. So we should really have sat in a different order and I could have, you could have put me over on the other side than the small ticket. Not at all. We, we actually need all parts of the economy involved in this and indeed all parts of the financial sector as well. And I was just going to pick up, you know, prerogative as the moderator, um, the point you're making about utilisation linked loans. It's a really interesting one. We've been pioneering of that solution at the GFI. We found a bank, commercial bank, that was willing to take the risk without all the data that we're going to need to actually pilot this up in the north of Scotland. So the developer basically gets a loan and doesn't have to repay until utilization hits a certain threshold, a bit like a student loan. Their credit committee at the last moment said, we're going to need a 20% guarantee. Now, for the size of this pilot, that's £40,000. It's not very much. But so we have a whip around. Yeah, <laughs> currently, in our public finance architecture, the idea of providing a £40,000 effectively contingent liability that could be drawn at any point doesn't fit with anybody's mandate. 
Yeah. So we had to go back to our philanthropic backers, and they're not represented on the stage today as another really, really important constituent part of the whole capital picture to say, do you want to help us just demonstrate proof of concept so that we can partner with you, Julia, at the British Business Bank and ultimately, hopefully, expand it enough that we could come to you, John? Um, I think it's a live conversation, and that absolutely is a guarantee in a role. And I think John's team and other teams We've been working with Tim's guys. We can't have these things fall between the stools. And the reality, you know, we were all created with a particular remit at a point in time. Yours is fresh and exciting. Yours is very old, Tim, sorry. And I'm but still excited. But still exciting. And I'm somewhere in the middle. But we, we, we definitely are committed to trying to collaborate, to try and find ways that we can hand the baton from one to the other. Fantastic. Perhaps I can just jump in, I think, because I do think that you've got a three different organisations here with a different mandate, but uh, with a commitment to that uh, net zero target and different roles to play to crowd in that, that private sector financing. I think that's really, really important. And, uh, you know, between us, it's great that you've got us all on stage together, but I think there is a commitment between us to work collaboratively to make sure that as little as possible falls through the cracks and that we're at least having that dialogue. Very keen to come back to you, Julia, obviously an MD at the British Business Bank with a key role in all of this. But if we could stick with you for a moment, Tim, it's Tim Reid, who's the chief exec of UK Export Finance, and just ask you for some examples that you've seen in your role, because obviously you have more of an international remit representing the UK. Examples that you've seen of successful public-private partnership, the the sort of collaboration that we want to see more of. Yes, I think, well, as you said, I'm, I'm the uh, CEO of the UK's Export Credit Agency. And like John, I've also got the dream job. So, uh, And I, we're really looking to crowd in private sector finance, so working in collaboration with the banking community, not in competition. You know, we will provide our guarantee, the UK government guarantee, to help enable the private sector, the commercial banks, to provide a, a greater level of financing. And we'll also do some direct lending in this particular sector to support the uh, transition economies. I think some examples where we've seen real success in terms of helping develop the supply chain in the, you know, in the UK and overseas. You know, I think in the UK, uh, so we're very much export focused. Glad you mentioned the supply chain because that's an obvious example to bring in Julia and the important role that SMEs have in actually helping us get to net zero. So if I could come back to you, Julia, and just ask you to comment on that. I think it's the real driver for the majority of SMEs at the minute. Look, they, they've been through COVID and they've been through Brexit with all the pros and cons that that might entail. Um, they've got Ukraine and energy prices now um, and few of them are really in a position to be thinking very long term. So it's not that these investments don't make sense, that they don't want to do it. They're a little bit saturated with cash because they took on the COVID debt. The cost of finance has gone up quite dramatically. And so even if they had the appetite to take on the extra debt, there just isn't as much demand. And we can see that the uptake in some of these green loans is not where we want them to be. The question for me is the sequencing, right? So we've really got to focus our efforts on people who are both willing and able to do something about it. And maybe we should focus on the landlords, right? So the landlords are aware we have minimum energy efficiency standards coming in. They are going to make their building more uh, tempting and easier to sell or rent to tenants because the costs are lower. So they're hitting the regulations. 
maybe the solution is, you know, solar as a service or lagging my personal, we love a bit of lagging, you know, not all net zero is particularly sexy, but insulation is really, really important. So I think we need to think about, do they own the buildings or do they rent the buildings? Do they even get the energy bills and make sure that we are with the limited amount of parts available, very, very targeted at where we can do an intervention which will benefit the SMEs, but that doesn't always mean them. So just quickly on the data challenge, where we have large public companies have committed to net zero, given a supermarket, for example, not only do they need to make sure their supply chain is on the right path, but that has to be auditable. And yet you've got these SMEs who are saying, you seem like a lovely girl, but I've no idea what you're talking about. I can't work my ambitions out. I'm trying to work out how to pay next month's bills. So there's a Bankers for Net Zero project you may have seen to try and come up with frictionless reporting for the SMEs, which is also assurance grade, because otherwise the first thing that's going to hit the majority of companies is that their biggest customer might disappear because they aren't able to keep up with the transparency that's required. So I think it's, it's a real challenge, but I have met some fantastic companies here today. You're probably in the audience with these tech solutions. And yet again, the UK will come up with the innovation and the solutions to solve that problem for the SMEs. Very doable. What I think is coming across very clearly from this panel, people saying they're doing their gene jobs and Julia's her excitement is this is really the cutting edge of finance. This is the area that you get to think about things from first principles. You really get to solve some of the most pressing issues. And I just think it's a, no one takes anything else from this panel. It's the idea that green finance is really where it's at. Um, at this point, I'd just really like to encourage you to uh, submit some questions. I have one that I will put to the panel, but otherwise you're all being pretty quiet out there. So please do use the technology to send us a question. And this one, I think I'd like to, um, well, I'll open it up to you all, but maybe John, you'd like to start, which is what do we see as the main driver for trying to rebalance that risk appetite that you mentioned? Is it purely regulation? Yeah, today it is. I mean, the main drivers, it's government policy, it's government regulation, it's government subsidy. But I think we need to, you know, as I indicated earlier, encourage people to have a slightly different conversation if they're the stewards of, of private capital. Because, you know, on, on the one hand, there's, there's a consensus that the low risk option is to make the transition and the high risk option is to avoid it. But the, the private markets will still continue a narrative that, that suggests the big returns are from making the transition. Well, that's, that defies the laws of finance as I've come to understand them. We've got to challenge ourselves a bit. This risk appetite thing is, is, is key. It's a difficult narrative, isn't it, though? It's one that we've tried to avoid as a finance community, which is saying to people, if you want to support doing the right thing, then it's going to return less. So I think we've historically avoided that. Sean, yeah. I can see you nodding yeah. as it shouldn't be true. It, it shouldn't. I, I spent five years saying we're going to be green and profitable, not green or profitable. And, uh, you know, maybe towards the end of that, people started to believe it. When investors think about balancing their portfolio, a lot of the things they invest in are today got a significant amount of carbon risk. And they're starting to understand that their portfolios are generally carbon heavy. And so finding other ways to deploy capital and to come into the types of things we're doing actually allows them to start thinking about balancing that. There will definitely be higher risk, but so far we're seeing higher returns in those things than, than you would expect. It's entirely commercial. I describe it when asked very often as fully caffeinated investing. You know, it really is. That's, that's what we do. 
And I think that will become more and more mainstream. The other interesting thing that's going on is there's a little bit of a battle between North America, US in particular, and Europe with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we see and we see companies who are setting up their first plants and they were originally going to set them up in Europe. And now they can see if it's got a green hydrogen element, a $3 a kilogram kind of benefit. And we can see them actively engaging in moving to the US and finding US sites. Europe will, uh, will come back with its own program. We certainly see countries like Canada also starting to, to roll out an, a green investment bank-like institution along with the kind of their response to the Inflation Reduction Act. We have to see what we can do here in the UK. Otherwise, a lot of the work that we do in developing the technology and in the innovation side won't get turned into hard assets and real assets and plants if we can't compete with the kind of um, kind of upsides that, that building those in the US today provides for you. Yeah, and Julia or Tim, if you'd like to come in as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's undoubtedly true that the landscape is very competitive. You know, the, the investment demands that, are, that we're seeing elsewhere in the world, it's really important that we try and stay on the, you know, on the front foot because those trends are only going to intensify. Yeah. Uh, so I think everything we can do to support uh, investment in the UK uh, and uh, encouraging people to bring that investment here to enable us to build that supply chain, you know, it, it has to be done now. And then I think we need a sense of urgency, which I think we can hear across. Externalities, I guess, is my point. So, so I think that the, we are very rapidly rethinking economics. I'm slightly disturbed that I've got two boys doing economics at university. I won't tell you which ones. And in both cases, they're still teaching that old model where the economy is an input. The environment is an input for the economy, mm. as opposed to the other way around. We don't have a finite environment that is only there to serve business um, and people ringing bells and doing deals. So for me, what we're talking about is a period of time. So, so this concept of externalities getting priced in is a very straightforward economic debate, which doesn't just relate to net zero. I mean, you look at some of the water issues that we have. And the reality is that those companies for a long period of time have taken profit and haven't set aside an amount of money every year to invest in their pipes. And for years in huge volumes have been pumping sewage and very unpleasant items out into it. That is a result of their operation in doing business. And I think from a public point of view and from a government point of view, we're getting a little bit bored of picking up the tab for doing that. So as the externalities start to get priced in, whether that's cleaning up your sewage or having a delivery where maybe you can't say that every single person who delivers your delivery is not an employee, this is a bigger trend, much bigger than net zero, which I think will change the economics. The problem is the time scale it takes us to get there. So I think that the approach we're really big on is making sure that when we deploy a 50 million pound check with a finance house, we need to know that they understand their portfolio, their physical and the transition risks they've got there. They're starting to look at value at risk models. Um, and whilst that's very strong in the banking environment, we have a challenge of a long tail of smaller providers of finance for whom that's a pretty complicated paragraph to get through. So I think we've got a big role to pay, not just in financing green, but in greening finance and helping the diverse range of finance providers we have which the SMEs depend on, to get their head around this switch in economics and risk and how we manage it. That is separate from the impact, but both are important. John, I'm sure you've got a comment on that too. I was, I was just 
thinking about the, the question you teed up and then your colleagues triggered, you know, what, what are the catalysts or what could, could accelerate the rate at which private capital is committing to this? Because at the moment, you know, we're kind of hanging on by our fingertips to, to all the targets we've set ourselves and the governments. We are learning that governments have got, have got finite capacity. And the other idea I think we need to explore, and one that, one that would just mechanically shift money quickly, is to just redefine what we think investment grade means in the context of the transition. Just reset it. We have lots of conversations now. You know, if, you, if, you, if you engage with some of the long-only sectors in the UK, we have lots of conversations about, tra please transform it so that it means investment grade. It's fine. We, we, we know how to do that. But maybe we've got to ask the question, well, what is, is investment grade as we currently think about it and have defined it correct for what we're about to try and do? Because if you change that definition, mechanically, money will move. So I, I just thought I'd share that. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is James Fitzgerald. I'm founder and CEO of eCargoBikes.com. We've been doing zero emission deliveries with Sainsbury's Co-op. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, won a 13 million contract with Acardo. We've done about 500,000 miles with them recently. We're ready to go. We have some very strong global IP patents on zero emission delivery platform. I've sat down with Mark Tucker, group chairman of uh, HSBC. Last week, I met with Al Alan Joe, CEO of Unilever, connected with Unilever Ventures. These guys, you know, to your point, John, they, they're just not geared up to consider SMEs with fabulous global export potential with our technology and leading the way and scaling up to transform, you know, the entire logistics of the UK, initially grocery and then 3PL. You know, it, you guys are all deaf, dumb and blind to the opportunities that are out there. So particularly, I'd really like to sit down with you after this, Julia. Uh, you have supported us, your organization supported us a couple of years ago, COVID. But there's a real opportunity here. And I'm not alone. There are other businesses not totally dissimilar to mine. We're, we all face the same problem. Bankers just don't get it. They don't get how to transform our economy to, to net zero. Thanks. So talking to the wrong people. So I, I think that the reason why they don't get it is it's not their job to get it. There's a, there's a natural ladder, isn't there? So I think equity investment or, as you've rightly pointed out, a strategic investor, somebody who's got an entrepreneur or has a fund, as Unilever would do, because at that stage you're at in terms of scale and in terms of risk sounds more like. So you've got sustainable ventures outside, climate VC. We have a very thriving early stage, early stage equity investment. And, and that's the place to go. Yeah, I, I think we need to go for horses for courses. I guess that's all I would say. Nothing to add. Yeah, it's all good. That, that point about horses for courses, though, I, it's a, something that I say quite frequently in my role too, Julia. Given the urgency of what we actually need to see happen, I think it is incumbent on us as a finance industry to help people understand where they can go for yeah. the right types of financing. Yeah, yeah and that's um, definitely and so, part of our... And we're seeing that an awful lot, not just with the net zero challenge, but also when we're looking at nature-based solutions, which is such an exciting area of growth huge amount of intellectual property sitting in environmental NGOs, trying to bridge that conversation so that investors find those things attractive. And this is where I will give a shout out to the Westminster government and also the Scottish government. We've worked with them to set up a new uh, investment readiness fund that is 
precisely focused at helping those kinds of promising, but as yet pre-revenue type companies looking at nature solutions to actually get that patient capital that enables them to be able to come and speak to the sort of larger pools of capital that are represented on the stage. And I do think that it's a dream situation if you can get an investor who's a strategic investor who could be somebody who uses your service as well as backing it. That makes it very attractive to other funders coming in because, you know, I can't say kill two birds with one stone. Is that still allowed? Okay, whatever. You've achieved both at the same time. So I think the alignment is really important. What I would say is that it's a, it's a world of difference between equity and debt. We run, the bank runs 16 different funding programs. And um, when we're looking at the equity side of things, all of our other co-investors are all over this. They expect all the ESG factors integrated. They really care about the impact. You can't get the money unless you can demonstrate it. It's much more in the debt environment about risk management and climate more than anything else. So it's a very diverse world. But of course, what we need to try and do is make it line up as much as possible, as you say, so you can see how that letter funds all the way through to that big IPO that you know you want to have in the UK. Just make one more comment, because I think one of the things you talked about was IP, you know, for us, exports are not just about goods, but it is about services and IP. But I think that's an important part of the, a really important part of the UK economy and something that we can uh, absolutely support. Thanks so much, Tim. There's a, a slightly random question here. It's a perfectly valid one, but it's a little different to what we've been discussing so far. And it's about green bonds, because often this discussion about green finance does have a question about green bonds. And the question here is, what does the panel think about new financial products like KPI-linked bonds and loans? And then are they better than green bonds? It's an interesting way to phrase the question. So does anyone, Sean, maybe if you'd like to take that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we looked at a lot of these things at uh, GIB uh, way back, and we need all sorts of flavors of capital. There's trillions needed. It's part of the setup for, uh, for this panel. And so if people can develop financial products that fill a gap that, that enable people to tie performance to delivering both financial returns and the impact, I think that's important. One of the things that we've done at Just Climate is tied our performance and our carried interest payout 100% to the impact. Not 10%, not 20%, but 100%. Because we will only get paid if we deliver great returns, that gives us something to share, and we deliver great impact, then we'll be able to share on that. And so bonds or other financial tools which tie financial performance and impact performance together and address a specific issue, a specific failure, the types of things that they bring to both of you and say, we can't get this funded, I think that's great. And we need all of these to work. And it's that financial innovation that will help solve the problem it's not a one-size-fits-all program. And, and bonds, of course, relatively simple mechanisms people can understand. We're very, very focused on supply. I don't think we spend enough time looking at demand. So again, coming from the cheap seats, I'm a really big fan of people being able to put a relatively small amount of money and feeling that they are part of the funding of this shift. Um, you know, coming from a crowdfunding background, people with five pounds in one of your wind farms would drive past and go, that's one of mine. So it really has an impact in engaging the hearts and minds. If your pension is in green infrastructure, A, it feels good. B, it's probably one of the best places to put your money just from a sheer risk perspective. So bonds that are open to the general public, I think, are really important. Not, not our current remit, but help you know, galvanize the public. 
fantastic answers from both. But the one thing I would add, the questions, one better than the other, both of them need to be verified and they need to have very robust and very transparent ways of reporting that they are doing what they say they're going to do, either if it's a transition-linked KPI-linked bond or a green bond, their value is in their transparency and our ability to hold issuers to account. They are doing what they are doing. And in that case, completely agree with you both. There's, there's room for all types of financial products in their transition. Conscious we've only got four minutes left, so I'm going to do a quick fire. What public sector reforms or initiatives do you think would increase private investment in net zero? I think it's a particularly pertinent question to ask given Sean, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act in the States. We're clearly going into an area now where there's effectively a cleanness arms race now between China, US, potentially Europe getting involved. So what reforms or initiatives would you like to see or do you think are needed? I think we need something to respond to that. And, and whether that's on the transportation and mobility side or whether that's a CFD for green hydrogen or any of those things, we need something that that did the same thing that initially rocks and CFDs did for offshore wind to get us there. But it doesn't in any way suggest that it's it's down to my colleagues here to solve this. This is to be private capital that solves it. And so we need, but we need those support mechanisms. Otherwise people will go to other markets. I, I don't work just in the UK, we have a global fund. And so every time we see one of these businesses, they quite reasonably come to us and say, we need to invest in a $100 million plan. Shall we put it in the place where somebody covers the outtake or the output of that plant, or someone gives us a tax break, or someone gives us some sort of support mechanism, or shall we put it somewhere else where there's higher risk and lower returns? You know, we all know the answer to that. But it's the support and the signal. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a significant amount of money. It's the certainty that the policy is there and therefore you're not making some mug decision of buying the wrong technology so if the purse is limited arguably some of our incentives for wind i'm not looking were overly generous at one point particularly on a smaller scale so we need to be cognizant about the limited purse but even a small incentive combined with confidence that this is direction i think those are two things which work well together john you'd concur with that and i also think we can improve on something that we've already touched on in the conversation today, which is the range of financial interventions and support mechanisms in the UK is really broad, which is great. But in fairness, it's hard to navigate. And I think we can do a better job of, of communicating around that, making this more navigable. And the arrival of the UK Infrastructure Bank is great, but it complicates that picture even further <laughs> because they come to you or they come to us. So I think we, we've definitely got a comms challenge, but one that is absolutely solvable in a reasonably short space of time. Brilliant. I think that's a very optimistic note for us to maybe bring this conversation to an end. Thank you. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.